Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Rags. And this is Salas. Welcome to Samosa Caucus. What are we going to talk about today, Salas? We're talking about some net neutrality, and we're talking about some Justin Trudeau's trip to India. Yes, that's uh, that was a quite an exciting trip for Mr. Prime Minister. Yeah. Well, it'll be fun talking about that. Uh, so, all right, so let's get started with uh, net neutrality. What are we... Uh, what are we focusing on? And So I, I guess that's a, a little bit deceiving saying we're talking about net neutrality because really I wanted to focus the discussion on Ajit Pai, like who is this guy? Uh, where did he grow up? Where is, what's his background? Um, what are his opinions? Where is he coming from? And then like what is he, what is he trying to do? So Ajit Pai, he's, he's a 45-year-old. He was born in Buffalo, New York. He grew up in, in Kansas, um, in the middle of the country. Um, and his parents are Kankani. And so they moved, they're both doctors. They moved to the U S in 1971. And then, um, our guy, Ajit was born in 1973. Um, he graduated from Harvard. He went to university of Chicago law and he joined, the Department of Justice Antitrust Division in 1998 to 2001. That's um, an interesting kind of department to jump for him to jump into, which will become clear later why that is. Um, from 2001 to 2003, he was at Verizon. Um, he was working on competition and regulatory type issues as, again, as like their counsel lawyer type person. And then after that, he went back to the government, first to the Department of Justice, and then he bounced around a little bit. Um, and then from 2000, and within the government, and then from 2007 to 2011, he was at the FCC, as um, which is the Federal Communications Commission. Um, and he was there as counsel. And 2011, he was recommended by Mitch McConnell, uh, for a posting at at the F- within the FCC as w- one of the five commissioners, they have uh, five commissioners at the FCC. So depending on who's president, but I think the split is an even number of Democrats and Republicans. Is it five or yeah? So it's it's five, and then the, whoever is the president gets the extra one. So under Obama, the head was a Democrat. Um, there are two minority posts, which. Pretty much the Republicans can uh, recommend somebody and then um, they're formally appointed by the president still. But um, it's pretty much, uh, I guess, historically, the tradition is that the minority party gets two. Um, they're always going to be outvoted by the, the whoever the president, uh, their party. So he was one of the two minority ones that recommended by the Republicans and Mitch McConnell and then um, formally nominated by Obama. And that was in 2011. So from 2012 to 2016 is when he served as one of the two minority figures. And then once Trump came into office, he made him the chair of the FCC. He's he's known for his, his quirks. So like during this intro part i should probably throw that in there one thing that he's known for is um his giant reese's mug and just kind of uh his i guess he in, in listening to him talk he's a very kind of dry lawyer but he's got kind of a quirky sense of humor also um so the the, the huge reese's mug that he's known for is part of that um he's also made a video going against uh, net neutrality. His main stance as FCC chair is that he wants the FCC to have less power, um, to, to do less regulation. Um, and so on net neutrality, he said, a, a dispute this fundamental is not for us, five unelected individuals to decide. He wants um, Congress to decide it and the president to decide it. So he wants to take the FCC out of regulating um, net neutrality. And I'll, I'll talk about why that's important. So on December 14th, 
the FCC officially repealed net neutrality. And net neutrality was something that has historically been the case and was formalized under the Obama administration. But now it's been officially repealed. And that's um, that includes um, the ability for ISPs to block specific websites. Um, so the end user would not be able to see it. So that's blocking. Um, to throttle specific w- websites. So that's... so. Um, the ISP could make it such that um, some websites could be slower and paid prioritization. So that could make it so that the ISP um, could make it so that um, certain websites could be faster. And the examples, some examples might be, for example, Verizon has a Go90 program, AT&T has DirecTV and Comcast owns NBC Universal. So for example, under the Comcast NBC Universal situation, Comcast owns a lot of um, pipes to people's homes, um, and they could make it so that NBC Universal content loads faster, or it doesn't count against your data plan, whereas other content does. So that that's how that net neutrality piece could work. Rags, I think you had some opinions on that, right? Yeah, so he's talking about five unelected officials having power to uh, determine what happens to Americans um, and have a fairly large impact on not only people's day-to-day lives, but livelihoods. And if the argument is that Senate or Congress needs to provide uh perhaps more leadership and find ways of taking up this issue or talking about this issue or passing whatever laws they need to to ensure that companies act in uh, the consumer's benefit, then maybe that is a better way to go about it. Now, we have to give some credit to that thought as well uh, as to whether that is a better way to go about things as opposed to having a body of officials that is actually split, you know, uh, one way or the other. each time if a president changes, something changes, uh, it may be uh, something worthwhile looking into to see whether the FCC is the way to go or we should just club it along. Is that too much of an exception case? With regards to the argument for net neutrality as a whole, uh, to see that uh, certain companies uh, or ISPs, internet service providers, are going to throttle or block some of the traffic and maybe create these different kinds of lanes, fast and slow lanes for people who want certain kinds of content. The one thing I'd say is his point has been uh, also that he supports ensuring that companies don't uh, take advantage of consumers that way. Uh, he said that he, he supports internet freedom. The internet freedom for whom? Like internet freedom for... The end user or internet freedom for the ISP to be able to charge what they want? Well, when we're, when we're talking about freedom, we're talking about a general free market, right? The idea here is by not regulating these industries, they have more incentive to build out more infrastructure and do other things in order to help, you know, maybe people who don't have connectivity, help them get connectivity and get them on. I think that's a pretty um, idealistic situation primarily because the they have like these regional monopolies and i i think that has to be taken into account right and i understand that and i i i I do understand that this is more of an ideal case of well if we did this then these companies would not perhaps engage in these practices and consumer backlash is something companies are aware of these days and uh, I, I believe uh, one of the articles said that in 2006 or seven, I think it was Comcast that first started throttling users who used VPN. So if you used VPN, they said VPN takes a lot of bandwidth. So we're going to throttle people who use VPN or you need to get on a, another plan. And then there was a lot of backlash and then they backed off of it. Uh, so they didn't. So I, I don't doubt that companies are going to try and uh, do this. Uh, I, all I'm saying is 
you know, let Senate and Congress deal with it uh, and the president get involved. Because if this is something that we're saying, it's like a public utility, it's something that's so important to our population, then it's something that the larger bodies of elected officials need to weigh into consideration, look at, and then try to figure out what they're going to do with it, right? So, for example, I'm sure that uh, a lot of Democrats in, at least in key areas that depend on technology, will 100% if the, if you know, they're contesting a seat, they're going to bring up net neutrality and they're going to try to find ways to tell the consumers why this is bad and how if they get, I mean, because even after this recent uh, debate, the Democrats were only two votes shy of uh, actually being able to put uh, in the Senate, at least, they were two votes shy of being able to put together legislation passing uh, to support net neutrality. Uh, but obviously, they would have still had to go up through the House and and then President. So, so I mean, obviously, there there are more barriers. But the point is, like, technically, if this is a bipartisan issue that people all agreed upon, then so I, I just wanted to um, read out some n- numbers that kind of um, speak to the popularity of this particular issue. Um, of Americans support keeping net neutrality rules, which are now gone, including 75% of Republicans. John Oliver's videos that try to convey net neutrality in a humorous way have 21 million views and 200,000 upvotes and only 4,000 downvotes. Whereas Ajit Pai's Santa Claus video has... 11,000 upvotes and 120,000 downvotes. You I mean are you are we are we seriously going to sit here and talk about how YouTube video upvotes and downvotes are either not partisan or actually give us an image or a view into why or who this video is this uh, thing is important to honestly like uh, no, no 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 I mean that was that was the first part that I did said when I said 83% support keeping net neutrality rules including 75% of Republicans. But the YouTube thing is interesting. Sure, it's humorous, but barring that, I don't know. Like comparing Ajit Pai to John Oliver, that's just not a fight that Ajit Pai is going to win. But I mean, those those are similar numbers that we saw in the ACA debate, where um, I think a lot of Republicans ran on repealing Affordable Care, and once they tried to do that, we saw town halls all over America really. Um, angry town halls against Republicans. And I, I think this might be kind of this, the Repu- the way things are going now is that popular things are going to be repealed by Republicans that were, yeah, that were overwhelmingly popular, but maybe not structured the way that they should be structured and not so- as solid as they should have been because they weren't bipartisan when they should have been. Um, like if 75% of Republicans support net neutrality, then Republicans should not be voting to repeal net neutrality. That that there seems to be a disconnect there. Yeah, but that's the thing, right? Like if 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 you have government that actually if you have people at town halls or people who are actually calling their Congress people and telling them or senators and telling them, hey, this is something that's really important that we really think that's gonna stifle um, growth. It's something that we want to do, then, you know, it is something that, you know, these, whether Republicans, Democrats, whoever it is, should take up as an issue and debate it and then pass laws to ensure that companies don't take advantage of the end users or citizens or, you know, or just people in this country, right? Like it's, so that's, that make, to me, that makes sense as how something that is an important issue should go through the ranks. Yeah, I agree. So yeah. it, to that end, I, I agree because like the status quo here is, there are these officials that decided to put these laws in place uh, and there's this kind of tug of war and then there's confusion. And then, you know, as soon as uh, a, the partisan leadership changed in the spirit of what a, the general Republican mindset is deregulating, it's something that, you know, Ajit decided that was how we wanted to go and that was the best way to go about it. And he's, you know, put that into play, Right. Again, if we have, uh, let's say, 2020, either Trump remains, or there's still a Republican, or there's another Democrat, whatever it is, you don't know, right? So there's this ambiguity that's going to continue to be there. The internet, having been something that is really now 
going to be used so much more and it's going to be so much more integrated into our lives just with IoT devices, the Internet of Things, and with other startups and things like that. Yes, it has to be free, but at the same time, it's something that important that's going to bring so much uh, overall growth. I'm sure people who are you know, Republicans, if they still have control and they're, they're seeing stifling in growth because some company's trying to pull some shady stuff, then you know there will be a set of folks who stand up and say no you know we we need to this is this is kind of being monopolistic now again this might be more of an ideal thought because if we were talking about traditional republicans if we were talking about people in government who actually were trying to do take care of these issues it would be different but right now we're in this weird phase of our democracy where you know it's a, it's a lot of talk I guess it's always been that way or it has been that way for a while, but you know, people are not willing to act about the big issues that seem to matter or seem to have to matter. Right, right. So I'm, not, I'm just going to jump into the next point, which has certain parallels um, about how Pi feels about net neutrality, and that's about um, fixed rates for interstate phone calls for people in jail and prison. So, um, so hold on, yeah, hold, hold on, yeah. hold on. Before we go go there, I, I do want to also say that uh, I think the second point that you brought up, uh, which was uh, with regards to what the internet companies were going to do, uh, I I also don't know that it's going to manifest itself that way, at least not immediately, right? Um, I, I think you you will see. I mean, you're already seeing certain plans where. Um, internet providers are saying, you know, this is our preferred content. We have this exciting plan where you can use this um, service without any um, cost to you. Um, so certain prioritized paid, like, I guess, paid prioritization. Um, what, like what? Do you, do you have an example? Of yeah, I think that was the or... Verizon Go 90 plan. I think it has um, certain services that you can use without accessing your data plan. So it's, it's like the ISP is picking winners and losers in that case, which may be okay, but it goes against the tenets of net neutrality. So oh, hold on, hold on. The, the, if, if you're, if, if Verizon is providing a plan to have access, an extra plan to have access that you're going to pay or choose to pay something different for, um, I, I can understand if you take something like Google and put it into that box. But if you, I mean, I don't, and I'm not sure how. Um, I haven't seen that plan. So both of us have I competing just, services, right? And and Verizon offers mine for no 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 data, and yours for data, and like yours counts against the data plan. So both of them take a lot of data. They're both like say video streaming services, but mine uh, can go to the end user without counting against their data caps. Um, so then they'd be more likely to pick mine over yours and the, the the way Verizon works out these business deals it's more likely to um, have that kind of a business deal with the larger company so it makes it harder for smaller companies to enter the space and compete because they don't have these kind of prioritization deals with the big ISPs like Verizon. That would only be true if they stifled competition that way, right? So if, if you are a company that is you know let's say, decided to create a competitor called Stop90. For some reason, you called it Stop90. Uh, and, you know, you're, you're competing directly with Go90, and you're on, uh, you have a consumer who's on Verizon's network. Now, if Verizon throttles that service, then they are uh, being anti-competitive. And at which point then... No, 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 no. It's part of, so there's three tenets to net neutrality. There's blocking, throttling, and paid prioritization. So what I'm talking about is the paid prioritization piece. But this is free. Yeah, but it's, it's still stifling to competition, to new competitors trying to enter the space. Because say I'm an entrepreneur, I have a service that does that's really awesome, and like it's a video streaming service that's just like awesome. You have a video streaming service that's okay. It's pretty decent, but you're a bigger company. You made a deal with Verizon, and you're going to send them some money, and they're going to send you some money. Like You're good. Um, and I'm like, okay, th- my service is really awesome. But people are like, yeah, but you're taking my whole data cap. I'm not going to use your service. His service is like, okay, so I'm just going to use his service. And 
it's because I'm an entrepreneur. You're a, a bigger company. So you've got that the ability to make that deal with Verizon. I'm like working out of my garage. I came up with some new algorithm that like is like sources the best video content or something. But nobody's willing to use it because I can't get into the market because Re- Verizon owns the market. I understand that, but but at the same time, the the premise that you're going on is that either a uh, there is not going to be any consumer backlash if this information becomes public. You know, B, that uh, people are going to be okay with a company like Verizon throttling and changing and pulling these back-end deals. I mean, let's take any anything, for example, any video streaming service like Netflix, YouTube, like Vimeo, whatever, like Dailymotion, any of these. That you, your, your assumption is that any or all of those large-scale video providers may... Make make cut a deal with Verizon to uh, have their content displayed on there. Whereas any other person coming through, a new startup, smaller company, whatever, they would have to pay. Try to make that same deal. Or Verizon's going to try to get them to cut that deal. And if they are not willing to pay, they're going to have to go on like the offering that is a let's say a slower, lower plan, whatever it is, right? That goes to the end consumer. And so the the premise or the situation that you've just described, essentially the reason why the consumer is going to lose is because they don't get access to the best thing in the market, uh, presumably because these other companies with ha- which have deeper pockets have struck these you know sweetheart deals with the internet service provider. I mean, they have access to it. It just counts against their data cap. I mean, let's for for the sure i i mean i get what you're saying i'm just saying like but in in simple terms that's basically what you're saying right like it's it is a it is more beneficial for the end user to use the less uh, lower quality uh service because it's of benefit to them to do that versus the other thing it's a financial difference right it's a transactional difference yeah at the end of at the end of the day it's um Verizon would say you know it's your choice like we're giving the option, we're giving you a benefit to use this service if you want to. If you want to use the other one, go ahead. But at the end of the day, we're giving you a free benefit, quote unquote benefit. We're not stopping you from anything. We're just giving you a benefit of using this service. If you don't like it, use the other one. We we don't have any problem with that. But it is like for, from an entrepreneur perspective, you're like, you're screwing me. But from a, like, yeah, so from an entrepreneur perspective, I'd be like, OK, well, you're hindering my service. Like, you're not letting me compete. It's impossible for me to compete. It's the same way that it's, like, really hard for, say, a tangible goods product to compete if you're not on the shelves of Walmart or if uh, Amazon, like, if Amazon somehow blocked you or or it doesn't feature you or if you're not on the shelves of Walmart, it's going to be hard for you to compete with somebody who is. So, so but then are you, are you saying that we should then regulate everything or every market or i don't like so where are you going with that though i'm saying that isps have a direct line to an end customer like a lot of people don't have a choice of okay i have to use comcast and if comcast says well you know what we have an awesome new package where you can watch nbc for free everything else is going to cost you on your data plan then you would say well maybe i'll watch nbc um and there's a lot of great shows on nbc but you're not gonna watch. Uh, you're not gonna watch CBS. You're not gonna watch this new YouTube channel or whatever, or this new video streaming service. But again, all of this is a exercise in theory. It's 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 not. I mean, there's there's already plans. It's like three months old, and there's already plans that are coming up. There's not enough out there at the moment that is disrupting everyone's everyday use or making a huge impact to what people can and can't use at the moment. Right. Like we. Yeah, I think it's going to make it harder for entrepreneurs, but it's not going to be it might not be so disruptive on the end user. And that's why it is so popular on the end user side. It has 83 percent popularity um, for that reason. But yeah, the pain is felt mostly on the entrepreneur side, not on the end user side. Well, no, I mean, judging by your example, it's not only the end user or it's not only the entrepreneur that suffers, it's the end user because. In theory, the entrepreneur who has a great idea and a great service that they can offer towards this end user is something that they're not going to be able to do now because of the internet service provider. My, uh, I guess my, what I'm saying is this is what we're claiming is going to happen. 
Uh, and we're saying, oh, well, there's already plans that like the Verizon Go 90 or whatever. And I'm sure the internet service providers are going to try to push the envelope. And all I'm saying is today's consumer isn't as toothless as uh, consumers in the past, right? We have a lot more information. We have a lot of, a lot of people are watching this to see exactly what's happening. And if if they do start, I understand that you're saying the, the Verizon plan. And again, like I'm looking at it right now and I don't really see a whole lot about it information-wise. It seems like very bare bones. It's like, okay, let's throw this experiment out. Let's see what happens and let's see how people react to it, right? So what I would say that the way to counter this and to ensure that these companies play by the rules and don't take advantage of this, which obviously after this has been passed. And oh, by the way, one of the things that I did want to mention was one of the parts, like we keep talking about net neutrality with this debate, but the other thing that was repealed was the Title II. What was repealed was treating uh, internet service providers as public utilities, right? So they're not treated as a public utility anymore. And one part of that was, oh, by the way, you are a public utility and you have to adhere to net neutrality rules. So by repealing the public utility part, uh, so one of the problems was that because it was a public utility, in fact, the Supreme Court decision, uh, not Supreme Court, sorry, the Ninth Circuit decision uh, that went against, so was it AT&T sued uh, FCC when FCC was trying to tell it to, uh, I believe it was trying to tell it to unbundle at the end. I don't remember if it was unbundling, which unbundling is essentially the, the final endpoint. So think of it as a internet service provider that, uh, that basically creates infrastructure and gets the internet into your city. And then unbundling would be that last part of, uh, the, that last step from the city, uh, edge of the city, let's say, to the consumer, that part is uh, opened up to competition. So the, the providers, so like a Comcast would own the infrastructure as an internet service provider, but Comcast wouldn't be directly serving customers the internet service itself. It would be some company XYZ that was actually going to unbundle and sell those. But but unbundling uh, was something that was done. Uh, it, that's, that's prevalent in the EU. EU has, uh, the European Union has uh, net neutrality laws on its books, etc., uh, so unbundling was uh, something that they've done there for a while, but that's something that's going to be really hard to do here uh, from that aspect. Uh, but in, in terms of the uh, actual uh, service providers start behaving badly, then I think there would be enough consumer backlash and enough backlash from the tech community from other spots that they will have to stop doing that, if nothing, to then just to tamper down uh, their public image. Uh, and if needed, lawmakers are going to get involved. I think the unbundling part is more about um, it's more about is there going to be able to be competition for the end user? So if there's competition for the end user, then you don't have to worry as much about these particular um, pro programs or even potentially as much about net neutrality. Because if I have five different options of right. um, Internet service providers to choose from and they all have different deals with different people um i can kind of figure out okay which package is going to work best for me whereas i only have one option then they have monopoly power over me as an end user even if they te technically don't have monopoly power because there's like five in the united states i'm not going to move based on i'm not going to change states based on what isp i get right that's going to be a hard thing to do i'm no, no, I I understand that, but it's you know the unbundling is something that is with our infrastructure right now and the way we've have have it set up is not gonna really work out, right? I I mean, the the main way that we are going to be able to enable or ensure this is one, the consumer needs to be uh, up to date with it, and if shady stuff like this is going down, you know there there needs to be a good response from the consumer saying no, this we're not gonna deal with this, is not gonna stand for this, we're really mad. And there, you know, pressure will, you know, should come from other spots, either politicians or uh, directly to the companies themselves via, you know, social campaigns, whatever, that they stop trying to pull pull that stuff. I mean, Comcast has been the most hated company in America for how long? But that has not hurt their profits in the least. I understand that they've been most hated, but I mean, it, it, if if you have a monopoly and you're you you have this this impasse where business seems to have uh, an upper hand for some reason, then we need to innovate our way out of it or we need to 
take action against it, right? I think they're a block. They're trying to sue their way out of competition, basically. So that's um, something that I mean, it is going to have to be legislated in in some way. And yeah, I think you might be right that people are going to have to feel the pain for a few years, and then we're going to have to vote based on that. It's going to be very hard because we're we're trying to really put into perspective a a issue as, as large as the you know something that's technical that's large that's a that's a little confusing we're putting this debate out there um a lot of people are making this very partisan um and you know one of the things i, I will say is like for example one of the articles was talking about a tweet from Rokana uh who said uh, he i think he put up uh, this picture of a portuguese uh, service provider that had these different kinds of packages, something similar, very similar to what you were saying, which is uh, you can have the uh, messaging and data plan uh, for an additional, I don't know, five euros or something a month. And that would mean that anything that counted under messaging, uh, you don't, uh, you, you don't, it doesn't count towards your data, but then other traffic does. But if you didn't want to get that, you can just still get a regular data plan of X gigs a month and just have normal traffic coming through there. Where when you say that you're separating out certain services and you're you're not um, and and that is not going to count towards your data plan, the I, I don't know how much that actually affects net neutrality as a whole. As long as your normal pool of data that you have, your your base pool is open to all traffic, right? To, to exclude certain bits of traffic uh, by paying extra uh, from your data plan is different uh, than saying, you know, any traffic coming through there to the base plan is going to be controlled by that model, right? That's, what, that's where it's going to be really impactful. Meaning I say that I don't have any base plan at all. I only have a, uh, like a token base plan, like two gigs. So let's say that shared that data pool that you have, as long as that's you know net neutral, meaning that there's nothing extra that counts towards it, that's fine. Now, let's say that uh, in a given month, I, I am going to watch, I'm going to be on the road a lot, and that means I'm going to watch a bunch of Netflix shows. Okay, so I, I can pay five bucks for that month where only Netflix traffic won't count against my pool of data. And let, let's assume that my pool of data is important to me because as a business person who's traveling around, uh, I use VPN, uh, I hop into hotel rooms and then I, I log in. Uh, I, I'm not, I don't use regular Wi-Fi. I use my cell phone as a hotspot and then I run my uh, traffic through there. It's totally fine. So if, if you're doing that, then I think that's that's a good option, right? It's it's an option where you're excluding and you're adding some feature to yourself. It doesn't mean that if you just have the base plan and you're a non-business person, you're just at home, that you're going to have to pay anything extra to change anything about your behavior. You're still going to pay whatever your regular plan is and get whatever data you have always gotten. And you're going to be able to browse whatever websites you can, right? And it's, it's fine. Like it's not, that doesn't change your... Uh, either your speed or the ability at which you can get to certain sites or you're not going to be throttled. So that's the main thing to remember here, right? So um, like, so my point was, coming back to Rokana's tweet, he tweeted this out uh, saying, this is what NetRidata is going to do. It's going to be awful. You're going to have all these different kinds of plans and this is how it's going to look and this is how your internet's going to be broken up. And that's untrue, right? That was like a bit of a stretch from his side because that was not really what uh, what it was the plan and that was not what that company was offering. So I just think that we should kind of think about this better as a whole. And this is great. It's great that it's it's an opportunity for everyone across to work across the aisle and to say, okay, whether you're Democrat or Republican, you agree with, you know, like you said, 80 plus percent uh, agree that net neutrality laws should be in place. Then, you know, as a whole, as a country, we should come together and like tell our politicians, yo, buddy, you know, y'all need to get on this and you need to put something in place because these companies are trying to take advantage of us, right? And and again, driving back to the same point, I think that conversation is going to allow for a better long-term fix than just having the FCC put rules in place and not. I right? guess as we've talked about throughout through the net neutrality um, debate that we have going back and forth, Pi has been on the kind of on the side of potentially monopoly situation so like there are two like there are multiple perspectives ways of looking at it but 
his support has gone behind the the Verizon and the Comcast, the side that gives them, um, I guess, more power over the way that they want to structure their deals for the end user. Um, he's also had a similar role in the, I guess, the situation around intrastate phone calls for people in prison. Um, these had escalated to a, a really high rate, like uh, $14 a min- minute. So it's very hard for them to make, say they're um, housed in one state and then their family is in another state. To keep up that conversation would be almost impossible to keep up that relationship while they're in, in prison. Um, so so the ra- those rates were fixed because... That was also a monopoly situation, obviously, where the prison had one telephone provider. Um, and so so the previous administration had fixed those rates for intrastate or sorry, interstate um, from one state to another um, phone calls. Um, and he has r- repealed that to to say that that's not something that can be limited that the phone company should be able to charge whatever that they want. Um, and the other situation was with Sinclair. Um, he, I guess he made it easier for, uh, cable companies to, to have, this is, this is one that I'm not, I I can't fully get my head around. Um, there's some suspicion. I'll I'll just leave it. that There's some suspicion of some, um, flouting of regulations to help get Sinclair more power. Um, and that's something that legislators are looking into because you shouldn't be drawing up regulations to support a particular company. What What is Sinclair? What do they do? They're a conservative broadcasting company that's like a behemoth. I guess the FCC, is, there's an FCC watchdog is that's looking into the changes. There's a New York Times article. I'll just... Uh, give it a shout and people can give it, uh, can read through it. And if you're a lawyer, maybe you can make heads of tails of it. But, um, for me, it just, it's just interesting to see what the different sides are. Um, Sinclair was a previous client of Edge of the Pie when he was working at Verizon. Um, that's my understanding, but it's something that you would have to read to understand. Just so you know, there's a, there's a John Oliver segment about Sinclair. So that's probably a good one to watch there too. So I, I will say at the end of the day, I, I don't think there's any question. Ajipai is a very smart lawyer who has a, a lot of power in government and tries to get his personality to show. Um, he's taken some unpopular views and they generally fall on the side of supporting large corporate interests or business interests, depending on how you, how you want to phrase it. I'll, I'll say that I don't, I don't see it the same way that you do. I, I mean, I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing to support corporate interests, but I mean, how, how would you say that he, he doesn't do I mean, that? you're, you're viewing this as him looking at it to support corporations directly and create monopolies. I don't think he did that. I think all he did was say we shouldn't be the FCC shouldn't be regulating, you know, these companies, and we're we're just stepping out of this discussion. It's not it's not on us. Okay, okay, but I mean, in the in the interstate phone call issue, I think it is in FCC regulation directly. He can't really step out of that discussion. You could say that in the net neutrality case, though. It's maybe it should be maybe all these things should be regulated by the legislative and the executive branch and the FCC is within the, I think they're fall technically within the executive branch, but you know what I mean? They should be regulated by Congress and the president and not, as he put it, five unelected individuals. So maybe the FCC chairmanship and the FCC commission in general should have less power. Yeah. So I guess those those are are different ways of of viewing it. All right. So um do you do you want to jump on to the next topic? Sure we can do that. So our next topic is our favorite neighbor Canada. Well, I don't know why Mexico couldn't be our favorite neighbor. In this instance, our favorite neighbor is Canada. Uh and uh their their swashbuckling young PM had a recent trip to India that was uh, fraught with peril apparently by reading the uh, various accounts and 
um, kind of watching it unfold. Uh, to kind of give a uh, general uh, backstory, so Trudeau and uh, his family, his wife and three kids, they made a trip to India recently. It was a little weird overall. First, the media showed that uh, Modi didn't receive him, and so they said Modi snubbed him. Uh, he had a bunch of different uh, visits for different sites and such that he went to. Uh, it was on all of his different visits to different places. He had, uh, to say the least, very fancy uh, Indian attire on, uh, as his family, I believe. And uh, well, yeah, I remember the photos. And there were a couple other incidents uh, in between, uh, which had, um, uh, which kind of blew up. So, like, it, it was uh, wedding kurtas and silver gummies, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, it, it would, I mean, yes, they're, they're saying, they're, well, not saying, yes, the kurtas, they, his sherwanis and his outfits that he was wearing seemed uh, perhaps a bit off given where, given the different, I guess, uh, kind of stops on his trip or it being an official trip. Uh, it seemed a little odd that, uh, you know, head of state would be dressing in different Indian attire. And the thing was, it wasn't appropriate, right? So it was, uh, it seemed like more wedding attire as opposed to something else. Uh, and so this, this was a, other than that, there's a few other things that happened on the trip. We'll, we'll, we'll chat through that. But uh, this this whole episode has kind of uh, blown up um, since then. Uh, so a, a couple of the intricacies are that uh, there was a, a formal event at the Canadian High Commission, uh, I believe, where they had uh, kind of like a cocktail party or some kind of invitation-only thing to meet Trudeau. And they invited uh, this guy and, uh, named Atwal, who was a convicted, uh, he was convicted in Canada, uh, in Vancouver, of attempting to assassinate an Indian uh, official in 1985 or 19, it was convicted in 1986 maybe, and he tried, his attempt was in 1985. And so he, he was given a sentence for uh, attempting an assassination, and uh, so he served a sentence, uh, presumably. But he he is also uh, this individual is also linked with uh, the Khalistan movement, uh, I believe, in Canada, and so he uh, and I guess he's just known Trudeau for a while, and uh, someone in Trudeau's camp uh, invited him uh, to come to the uh, come meet Trudeau, and from his side he's like, oh, I, I'm sorry, I didn't know this was going to be such a big diplomatic mess, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, it, you know, he actually went and met Trudeau and it, people in India were like, dude, what are you doing? Why, why are you meeting with? Uh, was this before the trip or this no, was during this was, the trip? No, this was during the trip. This was on the trip in India. He met with this guy. And was it at the beginning of the trip? Because the, during that, the whole during the whole trip, or at least like the beginning several days, it seemed like no Indian official wanted to meet with him. Does that raise the results or? Yeah, I mean, the, the, so there's a couple things, right? So they, there was a lot of speculation that Trudeau uh, didn't meet or Modi didn't meet Trudeau because, or Indian officials were snubbing him because of his kind of association with uh, the Khalistan movement in Canada uh, or with other Sikh Sikh, uh, separatists, uh, things like that. They, I don't think they're very happy in general, about a lot of Sikh people getting into office in Canada, and they're worried. Are there a lot of Sikh people in office in India currently? No. Uh, in fact, I, I, I believe uh, one of the, something I read uh, mentioned that Trudeau uh, once said that the Liberals' cabinet in Canada had more Sikhs in office uh, than India, which is a wild, uh, even con- conjecture to make if that could be true. I know that the, the Indian government, as listeners to this podcast likely know, is um, currently, I think, Hindu nationalist would be an accurate 
way of dis- describing uh, them. Yeah, so. they're they're yeah they're uh, nationalists, but I mean this was a few years ago. I think is is when he said it, uh, and he boasted at one point that this was the case. Uh, to to give you some idea though, uh, in uh, in Canada, I think roughly four uh, percent are uh, Indo Canadians, uh, meaning. Canadians of Indian origin from anywhere in India, and out of them, half, roughly half, maybe two percent, meaning two percent of Canada are Sikhs. So the the speculation. So there's there's a couple things going on, right? So there's speculation that the Indian government is kind of increasingly seeing uh, the uh, increased activity of uh, Khalistan uh, movement in all these different places and uh, in UK, in the US, in uh, Canada, and they're starting to get worried about how other countries are going to view them. Uh, now, we, we should mention that a lot of this stems from um, 1984 uh, after Indra Gandhi, well, uh, yeah, after Indra Gandhi went in uh, to uh, the Golden Temple in Amritsar and uh, they uh, and she basically brought the military in and uh, they uh, killed a bunch of uh, Sikh leaders um, and by what the government says, uh, terrorists uh, who were who had weapons uh, and, you know, they were like they, they had all these weapons, they were going to attack. And so we had to take them out. Uh, in retaliation, her uh, Indra Gandhi, who was our prime minister, who's the daughter of uh, Jawaharlal Nehru, her uh, you know, she got assassinated by her Sikh bodyguards. And after that, uh, basically, there was uh, chaos. And uh, a lot of people were targeting Sikhs. Uh, and uh, for those who don't know, Sikhs wear uh, turbans and uh, have uh, unshorn beards. And so uh, they're, they're easily, I guess, identifiable uh, in general populace. And so uh, a lot of Sikhs got uh, murdered, um, actually. And uh, many uh, had to flee. Uh, and, and there was a large exodus that went into uh, different communities in the UK and Canada. Uh, they just had to get out of there because uh, they feared for their safety. Uh, and uh, the Indian government has always mentioned that those were riots. Uh, and Canada recently uh, adopted a resolution that said uh, that actually uh, declared the, that episode as genocide uh, against Sikhs. Uh, and so part of it is the Indian government thinking, well, you know, that we're starting to see more activity. People are going to kind of talk smack about us and that's going to affect us uh, all across. And so I think they're wary of that. But at the same time, there's also some speculation on the other end that Trudeau didn't do this to actually go and talk to people in India uh, or talk to in the Indian government. He did this to... Uh, potentially, you mean the his India trip, his week long right? Trip. The the trip itself was more a photo op uh, for him. Hmm. So basically, his standing with uh, Sikhs in Canada may may be more important than the trade. I, I mean, that's that's the speculation. Now, like a couple of years ago, twenty fifteen, India signed a, a billion plus dollar deal with Canada or something where. Uh, I don't know if that was the actual numbers. I have to look look back at it. But they signed a big deal with Canada. Canada is going to provide uranium to India uh, for their uh, nuclear uh, reactors and, I guess, potentially nuclear weapons. But they're going to provide uranium to India. Uh, so they have, like, a pretty big trade reason to keep trading with Canada. Uh, and, can, and Canada, uh, on the flip side, also is trying to sell uh, trade with India. Uh, they're going to try to trade lentils and stuff that they grow in Canada to it, back to India. Yeah, it's really interesting, like, because the, the takeaways in the West, like you're saying, um, like this, this trip did get noticed by people, but for completely different reasons. And the fact that he did kind of stick out because he dressed like he was doing normal activities and wearing um, wedding attire. Yeah. um, Yeah. That made the news. And then the other thing that made the news, interestingly enough, was his his son just making hilarious poses, like lying down, um, kind of like making faces at, at... like it, it Modi kind of like uh, being silly. I mean, this is this is like a five year old just being being. He's three year old. Three year old, so just kind of being yeah. silly. But it's it's kind of interesting that the things that broke through in the West were the the clothing and the kid, and 
the underlying story was this um this the Sikh in the role of the Sikh independence movement in Canada. I, I wouldn't say I mean I think that did come up because that was definitely one of the speculated reasons why uh perhaps he had a a, a rather cool reception when he came over to visit. Some of the speculation was that his uh, alliances or his uh, perhaps his closeness to the separatist movement uh, caused concern. But I don't know if it was something that the Canadian officials coaxed the Indian officials afterwards uh, to say or if they just did. And India actually uh, came out and said, uh, no, you know, it's just normal protocol. He came over for the trip and, you know, somebody else visited him. Uh, and then, you know, he, yeah, we met him at the, uh, at the other dinner the other time. So it's not like we didn't chat and we did talk about trade and a couple other things. So it's, you know, it's normal. Whereas like the optics, every, everything seemed to indicate that they were unhappy, uh, somehow with his presence or whatever. Uh, I mean, this, this has caused like bigger issues too. There's, there's another incident in between the trip where uh, that guy at while I was talking you about... You mean during the trip or after the during trip? During the trip. Yeah, yeah, during the trip. One of the people in Trudeau's crew basically said something to suggest that it could have been someone in the Indian government itself or Indian intelligence or someone else who invited that guy on purpose hmm. to make it, to make, uh, to cause like more of an uproar. And India actually came out and released a statement saying, no... There was nobody involved in, in inviting this person there. We there's no reason for us to invite him, and uh, and actually somebody in his um, this other guy who was this uh, liberal chair of the liberals in uh, in Vancouver. I believe his name is Sarai. I'm not sure. Uh, he uh, he is the one who actually said no. I'm the one who invited him. And he, he, you know, later on said, no, no, I was the one who actually invited him. It was my mistake. And he actually stepped down from his chair position or whatever it was. And uh, so, it, you know, there's there were like a lot of snafus that could have completely been avoided. The, the, the odd thing about this trip as a whole was that it really didn't have to go down this way. You know, uh, official trips usually are better choreographed. Uh, they're, uh, there's generally better research behind it. And... You know, typically, you know, you, you have people who are telling you the exact protocols and the right things you need to do at right times. Uh, unless you have a leader who is completely unhinged like uh, Trump, you know, you just you kind of throw it out the window and just say he's just going to do what he's going to do. There's not there's no controlling him. Trudeau is the opposite, right? Trudeau is definitely more about appearances, being more aware in general of the culture or of being uh, being more inclusive, things like that. So you wouldn't really expect that from him. So you know, it, yeah, he's a guy who always has a smile on his face, right? He has a smile um, on his face, and he's so he's generally non-confrontational. And so this this just seemed weird from his standards. Right? I mean, I, I can see it from India's perspective too, where they if they might have courted this because, like you said, there's a lot of Sikhs in the Canadian government. If your government doesn't have a lot of Sikhs in it, like India's doesn't, and has kind of a pro-Hindu nationalist mentality you almost want to create some kind of a con well, conflict. I don't know about all that. Like Now you're pushing into like con conspiracy theory mode. Well, I mean, you said the same thing from Canada's perspective. I'm just saying it from India's perspective that they, they just like you said, Trudeau might be playing for the um, Canada crowd and Modi might be playing for the India crowd. I think from both sides, this might be a way to rally support. I think you're misjudging how much people in India care about Canada in general, or how much they they are worried about a minority group. They just don't care. Like for Modi to specifically go and snub Trudeau and say that, or somehow if if BJP played that off as, hey, look, we're snubbing this leader from Canada because of his ties to Sikh separatism, which is something you really care about, well, that is a stretch because uh, most people in India are just trying to survive, right? Like, they don't care. Like, for them, this is really a non-issue. It doesn't affect most people. In, in fact, I, I would, to a large extent, most things that happen outside of Delhi are just 
like massive, you know, things that just happen, right? In the South and all these different states, they're so huge. I mean, you talk about hundreds of millions of people, they have their own like issues to deal with, right? So they're not really sitting there thinking, oh, well, Sikh separatism is a huge issue. I mean, issue. I think there are people that did care, obviously. I mean, I think it played a difference to how this whole whole trip went down. Yeah, sure. I, all I'm saying is if you're Modi and if you're a BJP, you don't need to do this specifically to uh, to make a play to your population is what I'm saying. They may have tried to send a pretty clear message to Canada itself uh, or to Trudeau. Uh, that's very plausible. But I, I don't know that they would uh, they would be doing this for the benefit or for to gain some support from uh, local Indian population. I, I because I, I mean because it's like a it's like a very small it, it is not going to factor into things as it stands because India has like other problems right with the demonetization with all these other jobs and all the massive issues otherwise. So I think this is just like a general snub like hey you know we're we're paying attention. We're not very happy at the moment. I mean, but I think it's just like in America, you Trump might do stuff for the base that seems totally irrelevant to the rest of society. Um, like, say, things like the after Charlottesville, he said Bo- the both sides comment. He's clearly playing to his his base, um, whereas the rest of society thought it was ridiculous um, and terrible thing to say. I see what you're saying. Uh, and I'm, maybe, maybe some, some section of the base might be really into it and they might be really happy that Modi did what he did. There's other weirdness because they were like, you know, Jagmeet Singh, uh, is, had his visa rejected from going to India. He tried to apply for a visa to go to India. They rejected his visa. Um, uh, because of they said his separatist ties. India did. Yes, India did. So I, I mean, obviously that's a pretty nationalist stance. So they did, but at the same time they issued Atwal's visa. You're gonna deny Jagmeet Singh because of separatist ties, and then if you're saying that there's this diplomatic snafu because of this guy Atwal who was there, who's a Canadian citizen, who was visiting India on a visitor's visa. It almost seems like a, a, set, a setup, if you put it that way, if they care that much about Sikh separatism and then they're allowing this guy Atval into the country. What I'm trying to counter is when you said that India courted, almost courted this because they wanted him to come and they wanted him to come on this trip so that they could do this so that they could say, hey, no, we're not happy with this. While that's plausible, and I'm not denying that that happened or didn't, I have no idea, right? But all I'm saying is if the if they did that to get points with their base, probably wasn't a great exercise in doing that. Now, Trudeau, for his part, is the one who planned this trip and went there to begin with, right? Now, it also, if he had scheduled something and Modi had been the one who, who said he was going to come visit and, and meet him, these are all things you know beforehand. Or if there was a schedule and they didn't come after the fact, I'm sure somebody would have leaked that out and said, oh, yeah, there we were supposed to meet, but they specifically didn't meet us. So you see what I'm saying? Like there, Some of this information would have come out about why or how some of this played out. It seems like... I mean, it, we're we're like kind of positing various scenarios where this could happen. But I mean, at the, at the end of the day, it just seems like a miscommunication. That's the most like, like Oxum's razor. The most simplest explanation would be that it's it was a, a simple miscommunication that is has international scale ramifications. Yeah, I, th- I think I can I can sign on to that simple miscommunication, which just speaks to the importance of projects like ours where you're like okay we really need to we're a global world now and we don't all speak the same cultural language we really need to understand each other's uh kind of get into each other's internal like culture and uh politics and really understand that at a deep level because it's very easy to make missteps well nice plug there salas <laughs> but yeah I, I i i agree with you completely and uh yeah it's it, but it was just weird this is just like a weird incident but more on uh uh jagmeet and uh and like sikh separatism and like what what's going on with that uh, and I, I know we keep saying Sikh separatism. We have to explore the topic further to paint the entire background or the picture. We want to take a deeper look into this particular issue uh, about uh, Sikhs across uh, the world uh, and, and the Sikh diaspora in general and uh, maybe dig a little deeper uh, into um, politics in Canada as well. Because one of the things is, uh, other things is that uh, Jagmeet has come into, and I think we talked about this last episode as well, that he's got some flack for 
being perhaps associated with some uh, so-called separatists. And so uh, that we, we kind of want to dig in there a little bit more to see what's going on, because a lot of this is kind of shaping up to be uh, interesting, because all this is going to play into uh, the uh, race for a Canadian premier, uh, where Jagmeet is uh, kind of trying to go after Trudeau. And so uh, we can, we we want to probably dig into this a little bit more. So look look out for that uh, next episode or two. Uh, so we'll we'll hopefully touch more on that. But uh, is there anything else you need to add, Thomas? No, I think I think it was a it was a fun episode to be a part of, and I hope it was a fun episode for our listeners too. Yep, yep. All right. On that note, uh, again, this is Rags. This is Solace. Take care. Thanks.